I want to review last week's teaching with you real quick, if you, if you spare me the time. Because it's good that we go back and we review that a little bit and refresh ourselves with what I taught. People who weren't here perhaps, maybe because we like to build upon week after week. Number one, what was Yeshua's first miracle that I talked about last week and what did that symbolize? Anybody remember? Maybe some of the youth can answer that because you fill out those little worksheets. Anybody remember? Turning water into wine. And do you remember the name of the village in which he did that? Kana. And what does the, the word, the name of the village Kana, what does that mean? Zeal. Zeal or passion or jealousy, right? And what did it symbolize? Remember, it was no ordinary wine. It was the wine of the kingdom. The wine of the kingdom that he brought forward in time, right? And it was no, no coincidence that he did this during a wedding, which is also a picture of the kingdom. How many jars of water did he turn into wine? Six, yeah, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Uh, who was it that we read about in last week's Torah portion who had a zeal for his father's house? Pinchas did, right? He had a zeal for the sanctity of his father's house in the, in the, uh, the tabernacle. Number three, what is the one thread that has held the Jewish people together for these many centuries now? The faith. Remember we watched the video and the guy who said it was one thing. It wasn't language. It wasn't culture. It was the Torah, the Torah of Hashem, the Torah of God. Number four, what is the numerical value of the Vav, the letter Vav, which is, if you look at our cabinet right here, it's right there. What does it symbolize? So the Vav is the number six, and six is a symbol of what? The number of who? Man. Yeah, good. And then it's no coincidence that Yeshua turned how many jars of water into wine? Six. Six, yeah which we're going to talk about here. And second, number five, what is the word for zeal or jealousy in Hebrew? Kana, kana. Last week we talked about this. And you'll notice, if, you, if you're familiar with Hebrew, in our scroll, you can see it as well, but there's the word shalom. But what was the anomaly about this word shalom? It has a broken vav. You see this letter right here is not supposed to be like that. But every Torah scroll around the world has that vav with a, with a space in it. It's broken. And it's supposed to tell us that there's going to be a vav, a man, who will be broken for shalom. Alright, remember we talked about that, how Yeshua is the broken vav, right? Now John 2.17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written. Now what's going on here, first of all? Yeshua goes into the temple and he sees these people who are swindling other people and, and taking their money and he's extorting, these people are extorting the temple worship system. A God-ordained worship system and these people are becoming corrupt from it. They're switching money, they're changing money and charging exorbitant amounts of money to do that. And he goes in there, he gets um, he gets triggered, I think my kids would say. And he starts flipping these tables. Now, you, you only have permission to start flipping tables in places if you're Yeshua, okay? Um, yeah. But he says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the disciples are remembering, wait, it's written that, that the Messiah will have a zeal for the house. Who else has zeal for the house? You just said Pinchas did. So you see, Pinchas is kind of a shadow in a picture of Yeshua who was to come. Now, what are they quoting here? They're quoting Psalm 69, verses 8 through 10. I have become a stranger to my brothers, a foreigner to my mother's sons. Did that happen to Yeshua? Absolutely. 
For zeal, and what's the Hebrew word used there in Psalm? Kana. For Kana, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Did that happen to Yeshua? Yes. Absolutely. You see how prophetic Psalm 69, 8-10 is? Very much so. When he goes into the temple and he flips those tables, he's doing so much more than just packing in anger and flipping tables and trying to cleanse the temple. He's fulfilling the prophetic aspects of Psalm 69, verses 8 to 10. So I talked last week about how the Torah, you know, this document that I just read from, it's likened to a kiss from the Lord. A kiss on the Jewish people. Remember the Mount Sinai experience? It was like the people of Israel were gathered there at the base of the mountain, and they go through this whole wedding ceremony. And they're given the terms of the covenant, with right the, the written terms of the covenant. They actually come down with this ketubah, this written contract, or the marital contract. And it's like a kiss from the bridegroom, so to speak. And it, it, I think uh, Solomon picks up on this in Song of Songs 1-2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So the Torah, it, for us, is, is like a kiss from the Creator. A kiss of affection. I've chosen you. You're going to be the, the bastion of morality and peace and hope for the world. Go and teach it. And that's one of the reasons why when we process the Torah scroll around the room, what do we do sometimes? We reach out and we give them a kiss back. Interesting, right? So this is Matot Masay. I don't expect you to be able to read this, but if you, ever, if you want a copy of these slides, I'd be happy to send those to you. But this is an outline of this week's Torah portion. There's a lot going on here, but I want to see who read the Torah portions this week, and I'd like to give you guys a quiz. And uh, if you get one right, I'll give you a high five. But number one, how many stages or encampments did Israel make in all? Anybody pick that up? You'd have to count them. That's a lot of work, isn't it? Okay, the answer is 42. 42. Good. I don't know anybody high fives yet. Number two, what was the sign that Israel was to move? I heard somebody say the cloud would pick up and then move and they would follow it. Yeah, I always tell an outpost. Number three, what sacred object would lead the way? The Ark of the Covenant would, yeah. If you read Exodus 25, 10 through 22, which you didn't have to this week because it's not part of the Torah portion, but what was contained in this object? Yeah. Good, yeah, is that what you're going to say, Michael? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the Ark of the Covenant was the kiss, was the terms of the covenant, written on stone. They were the, the, the Ten Commandments, and that's why we have them painted here on the Torah cabinet that Mary did such a good job painting here. But these represent one through ten right here, the Ten Commandments, because in the original Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were the Cliff Notes version of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So how many cities of refuge were there to be? Because that's in this week's scoreboard. Yeah, Greg? No, you're very close, though. No? Six. Six. Six cities of refuge. And then it talks about, in this week's Torah portion, setting up these Levitical cities where Levites would go and live while they're off duty. And they would be expected to teach the Torah in these Levitical cities. But how many of those were set up? There's a bunch. There's 48 Levitical cities. Interesting, right? So if you subtract the cities of refuge from the cities of uh, the Levites, you get 42. And how many stages of, of Israel's journeys were there? 42. I don't know if there's something there. It's interesting. 
So here's a uh, rabbinic commentary says this about this week's Torah portion. It suggests that each of us goes through a parallel of 42 journeys in our lives. Each stop represents a stage of growth. The Baal Shem Tov is ascribed as saying, whatever happened to the people will happen to each individual. All the 42 journeys of Israel will occur to each person between the time of their birth and when they die. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if that's true or not, but I think Paul picks up on that, that idea in 1 Corinthians 10, when he says that these things happened as a warning to us who live in the last days. That we should study the book of Numbers and what happened to the people of Israel in the wilderness. Because these things happened as examples were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So we have a lesson to learn even to this day about their journeys through the wilderness, right? I want to give you a quick tour of my China cabinet. How many of you have been to my home before? Can you raise your hand? Wow, good, that's awesome. Any of those who haven't raised their hand, I need to get you to my home. Um, I have a china cabinet, and it's right behind where I normally sit at the dining room table. And many of you have probably seen this china cabinet. I love this china cabinet. I found it on Facebook Marketplace for fairly inexpensive. And uh, I somehow called it to my house and didn't break the glass in it. But I love this china cabinet because I like to put things in it. All right? I'm like, I'm like a little rat. I have like a rat's nest. I'm like, I'm just going to put things in there and display them. But what are some, what are some things in my china cabinet? That you might see. Now, do I put dirty socks in my china cabinet? No. 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 Micah might, but I don't. <laughs> what are some things I might put in my china cabinet? Do I do I um do I charge my phone and other devices in my china cabinet? No, I don't. Do I put dirty dishes in my china cabinet? No, that would be weird, right? What do I put in there? Well, let me take you through a little bit of things here. So these things right here are Bibles that my dad used when he was a pastor in ministry, okay? He used about three Bibles in his 30 years of ministry, give or take, and he took copious notes throughout those Bibles. And so when he passed, I got two of those Bibles and they're right there in my china cabinet. So at any time I can pull those Bibles out and I can read them and see what he was thinking about those verses. Then I've got a 100-year-old pair of tefillin right there. If you don't know what tefillin is, I'll tell you later. Uh, I've got um, a 100-plus-year-old siddur, like a prayer book, right there. I've got a uh, tallit that Noah wore for his bar mitzvah, and I've got a tallit that my dad brought back from Israel in the 90s. I've got a family photo, and then all this stuff here that you see, these are all dishes from my, my wife's grandmother. When she passed, we inherited her dishes, her fine china. And do you think we use those dishes every meal? No. Do you think we, uh, you think we eat hot dogs and hamburgers on those for lunch every day? No. When do you think we use those dishes? Passover. I heard somebody say Passover. Some of you have been in my house on Passover. Yeah. Some of you have been in my house on Passover, and you've eaten all these dishes before. So really about once a year we use these dishes. I would like to use them more, except we have three boys in the house, and uh, what do you think will happen? <laughs> they would start to dwindle in numbers, wouldn't they? So we use them for very special occasions. We, and then we have over here some Shabbat candles. You know, so this is a... The China cabinet is a place of honor, isn't it? It's like things that I really value, I put there. But what else, though? What do all these things have in common? Notice the transparency of this glass. What does that allow me to do? You can see them. And you might ask, well, what is that Bible right there? Oh, that was my dad's Bible. I can get it out and show you. I'll notice one of that. What is that? It's a tweet that my dad brought from Israel in the 90s. 
Oh, that's my, my wife's grandmother's china. So it's transparent. I like to show some of these things off and show you. This is a 100-year-old sedur and so on and so forth, okay? So you guys have any places of honor in your home? Think about that. You don't have to answer that question. Some of it might be like a fireplace mantle, all right? It might be on the dashboard of your car. I don't know. We have different places of honor, but many people have china cabinets. How many of you have a china cabinet in your home and you put valuable things in it? Yeah, and you like to show those things off. That's really neat. That's, that's what humans do. That's, that's excellent. I love that. And I asked you this question last week. What if, after 400 years of not owning a Bible or seeing pages of Scripture, several of us re- received a direct and audible revelation from God? And then in that audible revelation, there were some rules that we had to handwrite these oracles and directives where someone had to write them down. We had to publicly read them on a regular basis. We had to study and to teach them to our families. So there was a utilitarian aspect to them. We could have just put them in a china cabinet and leave them and never get them back out. We had to observe them and follow them as a code of conduct for our community. And we had to teach them to other nations and other people who have never heard about them before. It's interesting, right? What would we do? Here's some questions. Would we write it down? Yeah, you better. Better believe it, we would. We'd write it down in a hurry, right? Why would we write it down quickly? Because it began to fade from our memory, wouldn't it? And we would all come together in a room and be like, okay, let's write this down. Okay, you heard that too? I heard that. Yeah, let's write it down. Okay? Here's another question. What would we write it on? Hmm. We don't have time to chisel it in stone. That'd be the most ideal, right? Huh? Notebook paper, perhaps. Hmm. We cannot type it up now, okay? I see here with it. We can write it on something, you know, that's gonna last a long time, right? Who would do the writing? Who would do the writing? I'll tell you right now, you don't want me doing the writing. You might want Miss Joanne doing the writing. Have you ever seen her have you ever seen her handwriting? It's beautiful handwriting, right? She writes in cursive and it's beautiful calligraphy. You probably want Stephanie to do the writing as well. She has beautiful handwriting. Um, Mary is very artsy. She might be good at, good at writing it down. But you don't want me doing it. Because if I write it down and you depend on me writing it down, what would happen? My handwriting, you wouldn't be able to read it. I'm left-handed and I smudge the ink when I left when I write all the time. And it wouldn't work as a good, if we're, if we're hoping and really depending on this thing as an oracle from God, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you down. But other people in the room who have really good handwriting, we depend on them. So would we write and keep it in the original language or would we translate it? So the very, like the very first time we write it down, in which language would we write it? We would probably write it in the language in which we heard it, right? Why would we switch the language up? That's not gonna make sense. So, you know, like Adrian, yeah, he can speak Spanish, but let's say we heard these oracles in English. Why then would we say, okay, Adrian, you're going to be the one to write it down, and then Adrian, uh, you write it in Spanish. That wouldn't make sense, right? We would write these oracles in the original language. Now, we might write in the original language, and then we might translate them into Spanish and make additional copies in Spanish so that Spanish speakers could read them, but we would keep them in the original language too, right? How would we ensure this document never gets lost or forgotten? Put it in a safe? Well, we could put it in a safe. We could memorize it, yeah. We could have a lot of people working to memorize it at the same time. Mm. How do I keep my dad's Bible safe and from getting lost? I put it in a secure cabinet, don't I? 
But remember, I like to get them out and look at them, don't I? I like to get them out and read from them. And I like to show them off to other people. Hmm. Where would we store this document, this original document? Now, would we, would we take it in the kitchen and put it in the, the whip of cleaning supplies in the kitchen? Would we store it um, under the bathroom cabinet? So you have reading material? No, we wouldn't. We put it in a fireproof safe, perhaps. That's going to inhibit our ability to get them out on a regular basis and read from them. Yeah, could do that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, we would we would put them in a place of honor, wouldn't we? Yeah. You, we could start to make copies. Absolutely, that's really important that we start making copies. But we would put them in a place of honor, wouldn't we? You all agree with that? We wouldn't even just put them up there with all the other books on a bookshelf. We would say, guys, when you come in this room. You should know that right in this right in this object here are found the oracles of God. This is a place of honor. Don't put anything else in here. Okay? And this is this is like a really protected space right here. It's, this, is, this is where we wrote the original copies of the oracles. We call them the oracles. And then from there we can get them out and other people can begin to make copies, right? And we can disseminate those copies and those copies. And then people would make pilgrimages here to see the original copy and the original parent copy and make copies from that copy. But the more copies we could produce, the better, because that preserves that text, doesn't it? Now, again, when we're making copies, we need to be careful. Why? Because if I gave Jeremy, if I wrote down, if I wrote down five pages of a story in my handwriting, and I gave them to Jeremy, and then Jeremy copied them, and then he gave that copy to Julia, she copied them, she gave that copy to Mariah, and it kept going like that on around this room for 2,000, let's say 2,500 years. And I finally got it back after 25 years, would it be coherent? Would I be able to understand it? Would I, could I compare it to the original text and be like, oh yeah, this is it? Probably not. Definitely not. Definitely not. So we would be very careful of who gets to make a copy. We'd be very careful of who gets to say this is an official copy, wouldn't we? We want to make sure we want to protect that as well. Would we wrap it anything? Would, how would we protect this? We could get like we could laminate it maybe, or we could uh, get one of those plastic protector things. Do you see where I'm going with this? All this has already happened. Would we would we publicly read it? Yeah, because that's what was part of the stipulation. If you get these oracles, you have to read them. What would they look like when we got them out to read them? About that, when we got the original document out, and we were going to read this original document that, let's say, Miss Joanne wrote down. What would we do? Would people, like, would kids be playing ping pong in the back while she got up and read it? No. We'd be like, guys, Miss Joanne's about to get the oracles out. Everybody be quiet. She's going to read from the oracles. Like, everyone sit down or everyone be quiet. Stop your conversations. We need to read the oracles. Now, here's what happens is everybody right now, probably in this room for the most part, has their own personal copy of these oracles in their own language. And every home in America has almost four Bibles. And so we lose the sanctity of these oracles, don't we? And it's only been within the past three to 400 years that that has been the case where we can all have our personal copy of the oracles. And that kind of waters down the sanctity of the original document, doesn't it? Because I've seen people just take the oracles and throw them on the floor. I've seen people take the oracles and throw them on the, the floorboard of the car. 
Think about that. You're holding the very oracles of God. And when someone reads from that, it should be a moment of holiness, a moment of respect, a moment of stillness, where everyone stops and says, wait, they're reading the oracles. Let's respect that. Right? But again, that has not been watered down and lost. But what if I told you all this has already happened 3,500 years ago? What if I told you that there was a group of people who had a direct revelation, an audible voice of God, and they began to write it down? What would you think? Like, you don't have a personal copy of the oracles, okay? You have to think about that. Would you want to go see the oracles? Would you want to find out where the oracles are? I would. You're like, wait, there's a group of people, and probably in the millions, who heard the voice of the Creator? I want to go see what the Creator has to say. I want to, where is the nearest place where I could find oracles? Interesting. Again, you don't, you don't have a personal copy of the Bible. Let's say you're just 500 years ago, which is just a blip on the radar in terms of human history. 500 years ago, you would not own a personal copy of the Bible. You would have to go make a pilgrimage to hear the oracles read. So, I'm going to ask myself, here's what I'm going to ask. Where is the oldest copy of the oracles in the United States of America? Because that is, I don't know about you guys, but I want to get to the oldest text. Because if this document is 3,500 years old, I want to know, man, has it been changed? Have the people who have been tasked with copying this, have they made mistakes? Have they preserved errors? Has it gotten watered down and polluted? I want to go see the oldest one. So let's get, let's get in the car. Everybody buckle up. Where do you think the oldest Torah scroll in the USA is located? Any guesses? Museum of the Bible? Nope. Where? Smithsonian? No, good guesses though. You're thinking museums. <laughs> Who preserved the oracles of God? The Jews do. Where do Jews read from the oracles of God? In synagogues. Why would you put the oracles in a museum? You gotta use them. You gotta read from them. You gotta teach people about them. So in the 1400s, a group of Spanish Jews, in 1492 to be exact, they fled from Spain during the time of the Inquisition, and they went to England. And with them, they brought their oracles. And then they held on to those oracles as they kind of settled in England. And later on, they uh, chartered a passage to what they were calling the New World. And they uh, charted a passage with a man by the name of James Oglethorpe. You ever heard of him? Yeah. He was one of the founders of one of the southern states, the state of Georgia. Marvin, Marvin is our Georgian native here. He founded Georgia. So these Spanish Jews hitch a ride to Georgia, and the boat lands in Savannah. And they get off the boat. What's the first thing they do? They build a synagogue. George Washington actually writes a letter to these Jews living in Savannah and commends them for their faithfulness to the Torah. And he says, welcome to the United States of America. Practice your religion freely and however you deem necessary. You can actually look at that letter. You can read that letter. But they have the oldest Torah scroll in the USA. And you can go to Savannah today and you can see this. They actually get it out once a year and read from it. They have other Torah scrolls there that they read from on a more regular basis. But this is it. It's over 500 years old. Isn't that amazing? Ours is 182 years old. The one here in Alabama used by the Reform Synagogue, theirs is 250 years old. So you can, your, your quest is, I want to see the oldest oracles that I can find. Now let's say you get, you get some time off from work, 
and you can travel abroad. Let's say uh, you want to go find, what is the oldest Torah? Where are the oldest oracles in the world kept? What would you say? Israel. Israel. The oldest complete Torah scroll still in use today. Where would that be? Israel, Jerusalem, no. Yes, is up. So here's a photo of it. The oldest Torah in the world. This is a Torah scroll from a synagogue in the northern Italian town of Bela. Probably not saying that. Bea, Bea. It has been identified as probably the oldest in the world, still owned and used by a Jewish community, and it was dated to the year 1250. That's crazy, right? So where would you go if you want to see the oldest Torah scroll in the world? Still in use? Italy. It's wild, right? Now, Paul says in Romans 3, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words, some translations say oracles of God. Now we have a huge debt of gratitude to the Jewish people for preserving this text and doing such a good job at it. Isn't it amazing that we have here? This, if I compare this Torah scroll to that Torah scroll in Italy and to the one in Savannah, guess what? I would see the broken vav. I would be able to read the, the Torah portion just like I read to you, written by human hands. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's the reliability of the Word of God right there, at work. So the goal of our adversary is this. Not to make you do like evil, heinous crimes all the time, but just simply to convince you that you can do what you want. He doesn't need you to become an axe murderer or, or become a terrorist. He just needs to convince you that, hey, just go ahead and just do what you want. Part of that is accomplished when we regard the words of Hashem as anything less sacred than they are. And that's why having so many Bibles pumped into the world is a double-edged sword. Because we lose the sanctity of God's word when that happens. But we all have access to God's word. I don't know about you, but I want to reclaim the sanctity of God's word. In, in our congregation, I want us to be people who know the value of his word and hold it in high esteem. Now, let's go back in time here, 2,000 years, to the Capernaum Synagogue. Capernaum maybe sounds familiar to you because that's Yeshua's hometown. He was born in Nazareth, yeah, but he was really raised in the town of Capernaum in his childhood. And this sits right on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Kafar Nahum, the village of Nahum. But archaeologists found this 2,000-year-old stone, uh, um, I guess we call it a paleoglyph, paleoglyph, in the Capernaum Synagogue. Now, I've been to the Capernaum Synagogue. I've actually sat on the benches of the Capernaum Synagogue where people sat 2,000 years ago. I didn't see this. This is called the um, Magda Stone. I didn't see this one, but... Do you see the object in the picture? Anybody want to guess what it is? It's a synagogue? Why would a synagogue have wheels? You're a rolling synagogue. Anybody want to guess what it is? It has wheels, but it's also very ornate up here. You see the little pillars, and there's little doors right there. 
What would that be? Anybody got any guesses? Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, that's what I thought when I first saw it, was the Ark of the Covenant. But there's one problem. What is the problem? Can the Ark of the Covenant be wheeled around in a cart? No. It has to be carried on poles. So it can't be the Ark of the Covenant in there. Well, the Mishnah gives us an answer. They used to bring out the Ark, right, this thing right here, just a box, containing the scrolls into the open space in the town. So in other words, when they would get the oracles, the Levites, remember there's 48 Levitical cities, right? Where all the Levites live, and they're supposed to teach the oracles to the people in the, in the city. Well, they would put the oracles, the Torah, in a cart like this, and wheel it out into the town square, and then get the Torah out, and then begin to read from it publicly, so that people could hear them and then do them. All right? But this was the object they would use to do that. Now, as more and more synagogues began to be built throughout the land of Israel, it changed a little bit, and it looked like this. Instead of this cabinet being on wheels, they switched it to where it would instead be a stationary object called the Ark. Because remember, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Torah. The Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant. So they began to build these synagogues in which would be a china cabinet, so to speak. Remember, in my china cabinet, I have valuable things that I like to show off to place of honor. You know, not everything's going to go in there. Well, picture in every synagogue there being this china cabinet where they would keep the oracles. So as you went into the synagogue, these learned men, would, they became called rabbis, would open the china cabinet, so to speak, the ark, and they would get the scrolls out, and they would read from them publicly in the original language. And then they would translate, and then teach on what they just read. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So they called these ark, an ark right here. And many synagogues that date back to the first century had these. Even the Capernaum synagogue, Yeshua's hometown synagogue, had a Torah ark in the front of it. Here is another one. This is a mosaic that dates back to 400 AD that was found in Beit Sha'an. Okay? I've seen this mosaic with my own eyes as well. But what do you notice? A menorah. You notice a shofar here, right? Shofar there. And then a Torah cabinet, an ark, where you could find the oracles. This is the china cabinet of the synagogue. Now look around. Do you see anything familiar there? Look around the room. You see, the layout of the ancient synagogue has been that way for thousands of years. It's something that when Yeshua did church, that's what it looked like. That's what, what he was familiar with. All right? Here's one. This is uh, in Gamla. Dates back to 76 B.C. Is a little little uh, cabinet there. A little enclave in the side of the wall there where they would keep the Torah. Where they would keep the oracles. Now, let's fast forward. Where was the oldest Torah scroll in the USA? Savannah. So if you go to Savannah and you want to tour the synagogue in Savannah, which I've done and you could do as well. There it is. There's a photo of it. What do you notice? Menorahs. Probably shofars nearby. And then what is this object right here? 
That's their china cabinet where they keep their oracles. Interesting, right? So it hasn't really changed much in 2,500 years, has it? You walk into a synagogue in Savannah, you're going to know exactly where the oracles are. You walk into a synagogue in Capernaum, you know exactly where the oracles are, don't you? And you kind of know the flow and the rhythm of the service. Here's one. This is in um, this is in Yemen. This is about a hundred year old photograph from Yemen, back when Jews lived in Yemen. Where do you think they keep their oracles? Right there. Here's another photograph, another about a hundred year old photograph, and it says here that this is the Beit Knesset. Beit Knesset. Taken, a photo taken by uh, Sir Albert Sasson in the city of Baghdad. Interesting, there used to be a big synagogue in Baghdad, Iraq. Very ornate synagogue. So where do you think they keep their oracles? Right there, in the place of honor. The, not only a place of honor, but the highest place of honor in the synagogue. Think about that. Like, we don't just take the oracles and just hang them on the wall because we want to honor them. We say, where is the best place of honor where we can put our oracles? Where we can put the Torah? Let's center everything we do, physically speaking, on the oracles of God because we cherish those. So where do you think we keep, where do you think Doth and Messianic Fellowship keeps their oracles? You just watch me get them out, didn't you? This is, um... Uh, I don't remember. I think this is, this is maybe... I don't remember where this was. I forgot to put the caption in there. Beautiful synagogue, right? And then where do you think they keep their oracles? Right there. All right. This is in Uganda. A little bit different, isn't it? And look, they still have the olive big Yemodal Hey, Bob Zion, Ketet Yud, to symbolize the Ten Commandments there. They have the Shema over here on the side of the wall. They have Sidurs. But where do you think they keep their oracles? In the place of the highest honor. They want to show respect to the oracles of God. So they put them in this cabinet right here, the ark. This is a this is a synagogue in uh, in the Philippines. Where do you think they keep their oracles? Right there. In the place of honor. So you get the idea, right? So let's go to Luke chapter 4 and let's see how this plays out in Yeshua's life. Because Yeshua goes to a synagogue. And actually he goes to a synagogue his entire life. He's very accustomed to the synagogue worship service. And I don't know what verse, it's somewhere in the middle where Yeshua goes into the synagogue. Can somebody tell me what verse we're on? Verse 42. 42. Nicholas, could you read that? Could you stand and read that for everybody nice and loud to where everybody can hear it? I'll tell you when to stop. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and he came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Okay, I think we need to back up a little bit where he goes into Nazareth. Where does he go into Nazareth? What verse? I think you and I are talking about this just yesterday, I believe so. What verse? 14, can you read it, Glitter? Yeshua returned to the Galil on the power of the Spirit, and reports about him spread throughout the countryside. He taught in the synagogues, and everyone respected him. 
Now when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up on Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual. Okay, pause right there. And Nick was talking about it. I didn't put the verse up there, sorry. Um, where did he go? To the synagogue. What day did he go? On Shabbat. And what was his custom? Going to the synagogue on Shabbat was his custom, as it says in Luke chapter 4. Now, what did he do? Fojo, can you continue reading a little bit right there? He stood up to read, and he was given the scroll of the prophet of Yeshayahu. And rolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Yeah, so he, the, the attendant gets a scroll out of the ark in the synagogue. So do you have a better picture of that in your minds now? Do you have a better picture of what that would have looked like? I do. And then he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he talks about the year of favor and he's embodying the Jubilee year. But it's important that we know that Yeshua was in the synagogues on Shabbat. That was his custom. And he didn't have a personal copy of the Bible. Think about that. Nor did anyone else in that synagogue. So if you wanted to hear the oracles, you A, you either had to find someone who had them all memorized and hope that they had them memorized correctly, or B, you go to the synagogue and you hear them read publicly. Or you, you read them publicly. Think about that. That changes things a little bit in terms of you learning about the Bible, doesn't it? I like this. My profile was hacked. If you get invited to a new religion, it wasn't me. <laughs> and it's funny, but really we teach this, don't we? That Yeshua came to teach and start a new religion. And that new religion was completely departed from the normative synagogue worship service. But nowhere in the Bible do we find evidence of him doing that. In fact, he affirms the synagogue worship service. Every time that Paul goes to a new village to share the gospel, his first stop is where? The synagogues. Because he knows in that synagogue are located and, and held and read and studied the oracles. The original oracles. So he knows these people are waiting for the Messiah to come. I need to go into the synagogue. I need to tell them that the Messiah has come. And it was hit or miss whether or not they received it or not. But Timothy says this in his first letter, until uh, Paul says this in his first letter to Timothy, I, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to encouraging and to teaching. Are we doing that? Are we doing a good job of that? Do we publicly read Scripture? Do we publicly encourage each other? Do we publicly teach? I hope so. I hope you get better. And I see a hand back there. So great. Yeah, what were the scriptures they were teaching? Yeah, it's a really good question. At the time of Paul writing this, there was no part of the Bible called the New Testament. All right? They had the, what we call the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. What we call the Old Testament. But the New Testament wouldn't really be put and bound into one book probably for another two, 200 years or so after writing this right here. Alright? So it's important when he says read the scriptures publicly, he's not saying I want you to go in and read the book of Matthew. He's saying I want you to go in and I want you to read the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Read them publicly. Now, do I love the New Testament? Do I love the apostolic scriptures? Absolutely. Am I glad they're in my Bible? Absolutely. I love them. I love them. I love them. I read them this morning. But it is important. Thank you, God, for bringing that out. But it is important we know the context of that. Psalm 119 says, Through your precepts I get discernment. 
Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a nair, a lamp, to my feet and an oar to my path. That's where we get the word menorah. You see the light and it's a lamp and a light at the same time? So one, um, that's why we have a, a light on the top of our cabinet there. It's the idea of a lamp. The Torah in the cabinet is a lamp. Now there's a difference between a lamp and a light. If I turn all the lights off in here, at night, could I see and read the Torah using that little light right there on top of the cabinet? No, that's a lamp. That's a nair. The or right here is, is all of this. It, it might be where we get the word aura from. That is what illuminates the world around us. So the Torah is like a lamp that keeps burning continually. And the precepts found in the Torah are like something that illuminates my world around me so I can see with clarity around me. And I can walk. He says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. And that is one of the reasons, guys, why when the Torah is processed, who is that front of that line as it's walking around the room? The person carrying the Torah. Why? Because the Torah is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And then everyone follows behind that Torah. Everyone follows behind it because they say, That's, that guy can see as he's carrying the Torah, he knows where to go. It's a symbolic gesture that the Torah is, our, is the, the way maker, so to speak. And we can see where we're going with that. So I believe, to kind of close out the book of Numbers, I believe there's three ways we can maintain a zeal for the oracles, a zeal for the word, is publicly reading and studying the oracles in their original language and context. Now that takes work, doesn't it? So much easier, I could have just come up here and read, uh, read an, an English translation, couldn't I have? And it wouldn't have required several years of studying Hebrew. I believe we should be training a cohort of people who can read the original language of the oracles. Are we doing that? Yeah. How many of you have gone through Hebrew with me? Most of you in the room. Awesome. Hope you've kept it up and been able to read it. But reading the, the oracles in the original language is so important. Now take, it might take a lifetime to get to where you can do that, but it's important we have at least a group of people who can read the oracles in the original language and then be able to translate them. And then I believe serving as an embassy or a nucleus of Torah learning to take it out to the nations. That's how we maintain a zeal for his word and the oracles of God. Now, this morning I woke up and I made a change to these slides and to my teaching because I was convicted. And I thought to myself, you know, I've seen a lot of people zealous for the Torah. And I've only been doing this probably uh, 10 to 12 years. I've seen a lot of people come and go out of my life and out of this congregation in three short years who are zealous for the Torah. But Galatians 2.16 says the following. We know that a man is not justified by works of the Torah, but by faith in Messiah Yeshua. So we too have believed in Messiah Yeshua. That we may be justified. And the Greek word there means acquitted. You're, you're off the hook. By faith in Messiah and not by works of the Torah. Because by works of the Torah, no one will be acquitted or justified. 
Guys, I've seen too many people hide a spirit of anger behind their Torah zeal. I've seen too many people in my life, myself included, hide a spirit of lust, hide a spirit of pride behind their Torah zeal and their Torah observance. I've seen too many people come in and out of my life and out of this congregation hide a, a addiction to pornography behind their Torah observance. So we can have a zeal for the Torah all day long. But I would rather you have a zeal for Messiah Yeshua. Because I don't know about you, but I hear Yeshua say things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. In other words, yeah, doing that Torah stuff is good. It's righteous. It's obedience. Do it. But man, if you just look at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her, you've already committed adultery with your hair in your heart. You've heard it said, do not murder. Yeah, don't murder. It says that in the Torah. But gosh, Yeshua says, if you harbor anger against your brother, you're guilty of murder. It's easy to, to, to do the things, the written Torah. It's easy to walk these out. It's easy to say no to pork and shellfish and all that. It's actually relatively easy once you get the hang of it. But to change your heart to have a heart of Yeshua, to have a heart that says, no, I won't look at that and lust after that. Or no, I will choose to forgive that person who has wronged me. Yes, I will lay my life down for people who are wrongly accusing me. And I won't get all defensive. And I know what? I will ask for the Father to forgive them for nailing me to a tree. I won't even utter words of defense. I'll ask for their forgiveness. That's a whole other level, isn't it? And that's the level I want to be on and working to get to. And I hope you are as well. Because we are not justified through works of Torah. We're justified through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Now, he wants us to be obedient. But if you're being obedient and your heart is uncircumcised, it's like when Yeshua says to the, the Pharisees, you cross land and sea to make a convert. But what happens? You turn them into twice the son of hell. Guys, I don't want to turn you into sons of hell. I want to turn you into little Yeshua's. I want you to not only do the works of Torah and to love the Torah and to cherish the oracles, but I want you to embody the character of my Savior. And if you do all this stuff outwardly, but you fail in embodying the character of my Savior, I have failed. And that's where my heart is at this time. That's a whole other level. 1 Peter 3.13 says, Who can harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And as we close out a book of Torah, it's our tradition that we say in Hebrew, Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazek. Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened.